Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The latest Franklin and Marshall poll and a report on babies born addicted to opioids. But up front on today's program is Capital Week in Review with WITF's Capital Bureau Chief, Mary Wilson. Mary, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Good to be with you. Pennsylvania will finally have a 2015-16 state budget this Sunday. Uh, We can't say it all came together, but how did it happen? Uh, A little um, quick moment of hometown pride here. Uh, In my home state of Maryland, also on Wednesday, the Democratic General Assembly and the Republican governor there uh, passed a budget um, with what they called like real kumbaya type bipartisanship. Like they were all squawking about like how great they were getting along. Um, And one of the lawmakers there compared it to a chess game in which the GOP governor simply beat Democrats at a game of fiscal chess. This is in Maryland. And I think you can extend that kind of rough metaphor here. Democratic Governor Wolf was just checkmated by Republicans uh, to veto this budget, um, this supplemental budget bill and hold out longer for a better deal would have meant sacrificing his queen. And in this case, letting some schools close, possibly, and turning his back on his fellow Democrats in the legislature. But it took nine months. I mean, uh, yeah, real long test games. (laughs) Actually, I'm sure there are probably some longer test games in the world. Probably. But, uh, you know, I I saw people who were touting winners and losers. (laughs) And some of those winners in the Republican, uh, the perception of winners anyway, uh, of legislators in uh, on the Republican caucus. And, you know, some of their supporters said that all we got out of this was we got the budget that was approved by the Republican majority in the legislature, but billion, or excuse me, yes, millions of dollars later in schools and social service agencies that have had to borrow, mm-hmm. and now they'll have to pay that interest back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So it comes down to that. So, you know, I hate to designate people as winners and losers, but from what you've just described, it sounds as if Governor Wolf was a loser in this case. Well, Governor Wolf says he lives to fight another day, right? I mean, that's kind of the reason he, you know, brought an end to this or is going to bring, you know, allow this to end by letting the budget bill become law without his signature. Um, But you're right. And Republicans can say Republicans that were really intent on preventing tax increases are, you know, the email started going out Wednesday afternoon. Look what we accomplished. We held the line. We didn't let, you know, tax and spend Tom Wolf raise your taxes, you know, woohoo. Um, yeah. Well, there are a lot of other people in this state who will take a look at it and say, are there really winners and losers when we have a budget that's nine months late? That's also true. That's also true. <laughs> uh, the governor uh, blue-lined all but $6 billion of a Republican budget that was passed uh, back in December. Basically, is that $6 billion what we're talking about here? Basically. I mean, there are some differences. Republicans say this budget increases funding for education by $200 million. And I say Republicans say that because it's being disputed by Democrats. A surprise. But, something's being disputed. Right. But basically, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the funding that was... Uh, rejected when the governor made his partial veto back in late December. Mm -hmm. Do we know why the governor relented? What did he say? 
Uh, well, what he said was that it was time to do the right thing and that he had convinced himself that this was the right thing to do uh, to allow this budget bill to take effect um, at the end of his consideration period on Sunday without signing it because he says he can't affix his name to something he doesn't believe in. Um, but what we also know to be true is that he had very few good options here. We are, you know, a budget impasse that's lasted nearly nine months. So the fiscal year is almost over. They, lawmakers and the governor all, you know, are looking at the prospect of entering another budget negotiation for something due in July. And this one, you know, might not have been wrapped up. So, you know, here are some of his options. He could sign it, um, which would be totally reneging on his veto threat of last week completely. He could veto it. That would have meant further delaying state funding to groups that desperately need it, including schools, including ag programs, like you mentioned, but also including state-related universities and rural hospitals that haven't had state funding in many months. He could have vetoed it in part. That would have kept the budget undone so that he could hold out for something he wanted. Um, but Why? You know, for what? Uh, closing the structural deficit and hiking funding for education? The governor insisted that it would take more money to do that the right way. That means higher taxes. And you need time. You need some runway to raise the taxes to collect the revenue um, to do that. And time had basically run out. People were looking around and saying with nine months, you know, with three months left in the fiscal year, we would need a retroactive tax increase to come up with the kind of money to do these things that the governor wants to do. And Republicans were like, no way are we going to approve a retroactive tax increase. Um, the governor had also run out of leverage. Last year, the bargaining chips were pension changes and, to a smaller extent, liquor privatization, and to some extent, um, a proposal for property tax relief. That was the cost of bringing Republicans to the negotiating table. And once a deal involving those items fell apart late last year, Republicans insisted they just wanted to end the impasse and that no longer would a compromise involve those things because obviously their negotiations to get those things done had yielded not much. Um, so they withdrew those as bargaining chips and Wolf had no other means to bring them to the table. And, and that is really interesting because sometimes these issues, liquor privatization and pension overhaul and even property tax reform, sometimes these items are talked about as um, you know, to some less extent, not so much property tax relief, but especially liquor and pensions. These are talked about as like albatrosses, as things that, you know, republic, you know, they're just partisan issues. Republicans want to get them done at the expense of, I don't know, like, you know, good public policy or something like that. Um, they're talked about like burdens and impediments to compromise. But once those deals fell off, we saw how quickly and intractably things locked up. I mean, there was no other way there was no other carrot to bring Republicans along for the governor. Mm. You mentioned pensions, though, and liquor privatization. I'm going to be talking with Terry Madonna about his F&M poll in just a moment. But uh, one of the things that he said often is that Pennsylvanians, for the most part, do favor some form of uh, liquor privatization, but it's down on their list of priorities. So I'm going to put it down on the list of priorities for the legislature, not with not with uh, Speaker Mike Terzai. It is one of his priorities. Right. And there's another reason to keep it down on the list. If I can just interrupt you, I'm so sorry. Right. Right. But I mean, they just couldn't come to a deal. They couldn't right. figure out a way to appease all sides on that one. So that's another reason to keep it further and, down on the list. And just to add to that, uh, you know, what Governor Wolf had uh, said he was willing to compromise with was to to make some uh, some changes within the, the existing system for some republicans that was good enough but for most of them it wasn't they wanted more mm -hmm. but anyway kind of got off track public pensions that was the thing that was has been 
from day one, I heard say, uh, Senator uh, Jay Corman, the right. Senate Majority Leader, say that you know we get nothing done on on this budget until something is done on uh, public pensions because it's a debt that's going to continue to grow. It's going to cost school districts. It's going to cost uh, the state. So in this budget, pensions were not addressed. Correct. Correct. So what happens next with the budget? I mean, excuse me, with the with the pension issue. Well, nothing until someone insists that it's got to be part of the next compromise. It's not a top priority for the governor. So unless Republicans insist on it, you know, to get to secure one of the governor's priorities, it's not clear how anything happens to it. But they but they were close. They were awfully close on a deal on pensions. What you talking about in December when in December, the, right. the, the framework, as it's been called, fell apart? Right. Mm-hmm. What, what did that entail That uh, when you say they were close on pensions? Do you well, remember? It had, a pension overhaul had passed the Senate. I mean, it wasn't pretty, but it was a deal. And it was um, it, 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 it received no Democratic support in the House, despite the fact that it was a major component of a, you know, a budget compromise. Um, and... And even Republicans got on board to defeat it because they saw it as a precursor to a tax vote. Um, geez, I hope I'm not misremembering this because things no, get all jumbled up. But. Actually, the pension vote, just to remind everyone, was kind of a precursor of what was going to happen with the budget mm-hmm. because they thought the votes were there to get something passed on uh, pension reform. And when it went down, then it it kind of foretold what was going to happen uh, with the budget. I'm curious, um, pressure, you know, we've been hearing over the nine months that uh, this has gone on, you have reported most often, but we here at WITF, uh, we had a gridlock project. We called it gridlock, where we talked about how uh, different uh, agencies, school districts, organizations were impacted by not getting funding from the state that they were due. Uh, In recent weeks, we have heard a whole lot about the possibility of school districts having to shut down. Did that pressure... Did that pressure play a part in the governor finally relenting on Absolutely. This? Absolutely, yes, it did. And and not not just because, you know, the governor didn't want to see a school shutdown, although I'm sure you know, I, I don't I don't know exactly how he feels about that. I'm sure nobody wants to see a school shut down, but because lawmakers were quaking in their boots about that possibility. I mean, you can see that a few ways. You can see that as making all law you know, making both parties look bad if a school closes. Um, it has terrible <laughs> people could not even comprehend what that would mean for all the people who, you know, go to the school, work at the school, yada, yada, yada. Um, but but Democrats in particular were saying um, our districts are going to hurt first if the poorest school districts that either can't borrow or um, are, are running up against the the, you know, the end of their cash reserve. I mean, that that's going to hurt our districts first because the poor school districts are in our districts, and um, you know we can't. I think Democrats were. You saw Democrats starting to say we can't we can't walk down this road with you anymore, Governor. If you're going to go there, because we we have to say that we tried to keep our schools open. So what happens now? I mean, we ha- we'll have a 2015-16 budget as of Sunday, uh, but as you mentioned, uh, we're three months away from the start of the next fiscal year. Right. It's it's really not clear how the field is very different. Um, 
there there were a few reporters on Wednesday who were asking the legislative leaders and the governor, hey, wait a second. I think it was the Post Gazette uh, reporter who was saying, hey, wait a second, you know, have you learned anything? Does anything change going into the next budget year? And it's not clear that anything has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, any of the big uh, fault lines here have changed. Uh, this is an election year. But uh, most what? legislators, what? <laughs> I know, it's hard to believe. Well, but if you just go by what's being reported around the country, you'd think it, we're only voting for a president. You're not hearing a whole lot about the, some of the local yeah, races. Yeah, offices. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. But it is an election year. Most legislators in this state don't have opponents. Mm-hmm. Will this budget impasse that lasted for nine months, will it matter? I can see that in one of two ways. On the one hand, the fact that um, many lawmakers are uncontested, or at least will be uncontested by the name by the time the November election rolls around, um, that means that they have. I can see that as meaning they could have some cover to take risky votes, and risky votes would probably be required for any budget compromise that suits both sides. Um, this also could mean that the majority minority numbers in the legislature are not going to change much um, between now and January. So, you know, what I mean by that is Republicans going to stay in the majority. <laughs> Democrats are not expecting to take back the House, the state house, or the Senate. Um, and so that means that Wolf is going to be dealing with the same kinds of. Um, people on the other side of the, the negotiating table, people who are going to insist on trying to keep spending as low as possible or or even cut into it uh people who might be insisting against tax against broad-based tax increases people who are going to be hostile to the possibility of um further levies on the natural gas drilling industry people who um are going to insist on things like changes to the public pension benefits and liquor privatization. Mary Wilson, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief, thank you very much for the update and uh, the, the thorough explanation of this. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania's primary election is just a month away now, and it looks like the state will have a say in who the presidential nominees are. The Franklin and Marshall College poll is out this week, looking at the presidential and U.S. Senate races, amongst other questions. Joining us to talk about the FNM poll is Dr. G. Terry Madonna, director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs, professor of public affairs, and director of the FNM College poll. Dr. Madonna, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. All right. On the Republican side, Donald Trump, according to your poll, leads Ohio Governor John Kasich by three points and Ted Cruz by 13. What's noteworthy about that uh, for most of us is that uh, Kasich has been coming on here in Pennsylvania, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's been uh, you know a stunning, in a sense, new development. But let's think about it. Kasich has avoided you know the primary and caucuses out in the southwest. He he didn't do Idaho. He didn't do Utah. He wasn't in Arizona. He basically says, my strength is up here in the Northeast. He's a governor from a neighboring state. He's putting his focus on the big industrial states. And if you think about his positions and the groups of, of people, the demographics of who support him, that should not surprise you. For example, uh, he wins uh, down in the southeastern part of our state where you have the largest proportion of sort of independent-minded Republicans, Republicans who will, you know, switch their uh, 
a party allegiance in a vote in a vote you know vote for a Democrat. They, these are also the voters who tend to be more socially liberal, uh, and and the same is true for you know up in up in the Lehigh Valley. So he wins moderate voters. He wins voters in the southeast, and that's the the core of his of his support. And for Trump, uh, Scott, it's it's exactly the reverse. What do we know about Scott uh, about Trump's support throughout the nation? It tends to come from uh, folks with relatively low incomes under thirty five thousand. Trump leads those. It comes from folks with high school educations or less. Remember, Trump made the, the now perhaps infamous statement that he loves the uneducated, or words to that effect. He leads those. He leads young voters, the under 35s. He leads the voters out in the southwestern part of our state, in the old mining and mill towns, where we have a huge proportion of the of what we used to call the Reagan Democrats. So we've got a we've got a contest going on here. Now I say that tongue in cheek, because you you've been following this next week. We could have a whole new narrative, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get back to Trump and uh, his supporters for just a moment. But uh, from your poll results, uh, it's obvious that Kasich could win the Pennsylvania primary. But will it make a difference in the long run? He's so far behind in delegates. Yeah, yeah. and you got to remember that there is an unusual situation with the delegate selection. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but... Pennsylvania has, the Republicans have 71 delegates that will go to the convention. 54 of them are elected out of the state's congressional districts. The delegate candidates that get the most votes win. Three to each of the 18, three will be selected out of each of our 18 congressional districts. By my limited math skills, three times 18 is 54. But here's the rub, Scott. The delegate candidates run uncommitted, or as we like to say, unbound, meaning they are not committed or bound on the first or any ballot to vote for a particular candidate. And the name of the presidential candidate is not attached to the name of the delegate candidate. So if you go into uh, a congress, you're, you're in, everybody's in a congressional district. Let's just pick the 16th. And Scott Lamar is a delegate candidate on the Republican side. And, and Terry Madonna goes in to vote, looks at these names. I see five, six, seven, eight names, depending on the number who have filed. And I see Scott Lamar's name. But, uh, well, wait a minute. Who's Scott Lamar going to vote for? Now, hmm. unless there's a lot of work going to be done to notify voters that Scott Lamar is supporting, you know, pick a candidate, right? Right. We don't know. And that's really fascinating. So you could have John Kasich winning the state, and let's hypothetically say he wins by 10 percentage point. That's a hypothetical. But Trump or Cruz could win more delegates because of the nature of the way the delegates are selected. And a lot of, a lot of it will be name recognition. So mm-hmm. let's say Scott Lamar's on the ballot. Well, you're a radio talk show host. I mean, a lot of people know you. Oh, I recognize that name. This is really interesting how this could turn out. 
Well, on the other side, then, and what is, you know, especially when the conversation turns to what could stop Donald Trump from getting the nomination, it's talking about uh, a contested convention. So right. on the other side, then, if Pennsylvania's delegates are not bound to, oh. to any candidate, what, what does that mean for a contested convention? <laughs> I'll tell you, that is a, one of the best questions anyone could ask. Think about this for Everyone believes, most people, I should say, believe that Trump is going to be the nominee. He leads by about 200, and, and, and he got about a 274-vote lead. It looks like he's going to be the nominee. He's, he's inching towards the, the magic number 1237. All right. But he doesn't get the 1237 by the day the convention opens up its doors, or he might. He could be close. Let's say 25, 30, 40, 50 delegates. The delegates that aren't bound legally, you know, to cast a vote, like our 54 delegates, imagine the pressure that's going to be put on them and the politicking that's going to go on to get them to move over. And now there are other states with unbound delegates as well. I didn't look over every single state, but I think we have the largest number of unbound delegates going to the Republican convention. So you're exactly right. It'll be ground zero. In 1976, Jerry Ford, President Ford, against Ronald Reagan, was about 100 votes short. His supporters were on the floor of the convention, and even before they got there, oh, you want to trip on the, you want to ride on the presidential yacht? You want to visit to the White House? You know, doing everything they can could wrap up those delegates who weren't, you know, at the time pledged legally binding to a candidate. And and he managed to get the votes by a lot of negotiating, uh, promise-giving to delegates who were at the convention in 1976, and he beat Ronald Reagan on the first ballot. So we could have a lot of, you know, a lot of negotiating, a lot of back and forth. This could be fairly fascinating if Trump gets to the convention without the 1237 maybe 100 votes or less shy of the nomination. Mm. Uh, but one of the noteworthy results of the poll this week is that even though Trump leads Pennsylvania, leads nationally overall, Ted Cruz is second nationally in delegates right. and by most polls, their That's unfavorable right. numbers are very high for leaders. Even amongst Republicans, their unfavorables are high. That, that's correct. Uh, and here's what the problem is with that. And, and I think everyone would admit has been following the campaign. I don't remember a campaign for the presidency of the United States that has been this negative. The language that has been used is literally beyond the pale. Oh, this whole, uh, this whole thing to the last 24 hours with Trump and Cruz going back and forth, criticizing each other's wives. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, my, I mean, over the years, occasionally, when, when, when spouses get involved in a campaign, as long as they're campaigning for their husband, saying nice things about them, I think you, you lay off them. Nobody, they should, you know, what is wrong with a spouse saying nice things, you know, about their mate? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, if they get into the business of actively criticizing the opponent, then that makes them fair game. But to my knowledge... Uh, Cruz's wife and Trump's wife have not gone after 
you know, the opponent, you know, virulently. I don't mean you don't make a statement here and there. And I think a super PAC for, for Cruz or against Trump, let me put it that way, went after Ivanka for a nude photograph when she was a supermodel, if I understand how that all started. Uh, but, but it's beyond the pale. Plus the language about liar and, and the way they're talking about each other. This goes back sort of to 19th century politics where, you know, a presidential candidate was accused of literally murder. Uh, that would be Andrew Jackson and, of course, the Jefferson business about uh, fathering uh, a, a child uh, out of wet. You know, that all those that was much more common in the 19th century. And we did have during the Kennedy year, uh, during the Al Smith years, the first Roman Catholic to get the nomination of a major party. A lot of vicious stuff that was said about Catholicism and about nuns and about other aspects of, of the Catholic Church. Kennedy had to un, you know, endure some of that in 1960 as well. But that was more surreptitious. This is being done by the candidate. Yeah. Terry, something I've been thinking about the last few days, because there has been, this has been, there have been so many personal attacks, put it that way. I'm wondering if Trump becomes a nominee, who he's going to choose for his running mate, because I just can't see it being any of the other candidates for president. That's one thing. But the other part that I've been thinking about is this campaign, the Trump campaign, has been driven by his personality. And we we wonder really how much a running mate does play a role in uh, who voters are going to choose. They're going to vote for the top of the ticket. But anyone that that Trump chooses won't help him because of his personality, if anything, could hurt him. Agree? Yeah, I mean, and look how unpredictable Donald Trump is. I mean, you and I could sit down and lay out you know, five names we think might be on the ticket with His him. daughter and, may be one of them. Yeah, yeah, right. And we'd be totally off, right, the, right. off the charts. You're right. It's we're un, I mean, I, I sit down and I think, okay, maybe Trump picks a more establishment Republican to build some stability into the campaign, right? Yeah. Or, or, or does he go because... Republicans and and others have suggested that he's not a true conservative, and he's not a true conservative. I refer to him as a populist. But does he go get a conservative, you know, a rock-ribbed conservative to run with him? You can see advantages and disadvantages to both. But you're also on to something about the the vice president. Vice presidents can hurt a ticket, except for one time in American history— Did a vice president make a difference in terms of delivering enough electoral votes to get a president of the United States elected? And that was politically the brilliant choice of John F. Kennedy to pick Lyndon Johnson, the senator from Texas, who delivered Texas and at least, you know, two or three other southern states that on balance probably would not have voted for a Roman Catholic. Uh, remember, we're, we're, we're living in a totally different era when it comes towards religious bigotry. Maybe we're not, given what, what's been said about Muslims in the course of, the, of this campaign. But I think you get my point. Other than that, vice presidents, you only hope they deliver for their own state. And in losing campaigns, the vice presidents more often than not have lost their own state than carried it. But 
We're just going to have to wait and find out. I think any prediction about that would be a short sight. We're, we're never going to know with Donald Trump. Maybe he won't choose one. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. WITF's Elections 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg law firm of Saul Ewing, LLP. All right, let's move to the Democratic side. Uh, Hillary Clinton has maintained a consistent lead over Bernie Sanders in Pennsylvania. That has not wavered according to the latest results of the poll, right? Yeah, that's right. She has about a 25-point lead. And this has little to do with Sanders. Look, this is, in a sense, a Clinton state. Her husband carried the state twice. She beat President Obama in 2008 in that five-week primary they had here, where, as I put it, as Mike Young and I put it in a recent column, uh, one wag said that Obama and Clinton spent enough time in Pennsylvania in 2008 when they were contesting for the Democratic nomination to gain state residency. Uh, yeah and 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 she beat him by 10 points she has her her biggest area of support is down in the southeast and in philadelphia where where you might expect Uh, you know just the clintons have had a long relationship with this state lots of friends all over it her dad hillary clinton's dad was born in scranton went to high school there and then played football at penn state before he moved out to Illinois. So, of course, everybody who has any connection with Scranton, I think more people try to claim Scranton, Pennsylvania. as, a, <laughs> as I mean, look at Joe Biden lived there until he was 10. Several campaigns after the conventions have, have on the swings that they do, you know, they get out of convention and they get on it, get in the motorcade or whatever, get in the bus and travel. Yeah. They go to Scranton. Scranton reminds me of one of those old time Democratic strongholds. Oh yeah, I mean it's, and I joke and say we have to be Irish. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I I say the 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 people who live in Scranton have an extra gene for politics. Uh, but, you know, in your poll, one of the things that you asked was uh, head-to-head matchups for general election. And in those head-to-heads, Clinton wins. Now, that's right. with uh, against Cruz and against uh, Trump. What about Kasich? Yeah. Well, we didn't match Kasich up, and I'll tell you why. He, 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 mathematically, he cannot win the nomination on the first ballot. He cannot win it. He could be... A consent. I, I, I beg to. I, I, this is tongue in cheek. He could be a consensus candidate. I don't think there will be a consensus candidate at the Republican convention. But he could be the nominee on a subsequent ballot uh, if it goes to that. So we only looked at the possibility of those who could win on the first ballot. I mean, in the in the April poll, perhaps we'll put Case again just to see how he would do. But at the moment, it doesn't look like he's going to be the nominee. That, and we were just trying to match the two people. At least Cruz, mathematically, though it's pretty high up on the uh, on, on 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 the degree of difficulty, has a chance to be the nominee on the first ballot. But your but but Hillary leads both of these candidates uh, by double digits. But both Cruz, uh, both Cruz and Trump, as I said, and I'm not predicting this. Because I don't, I'm not ending elections, but in the in a degree of difficulty, Hillary, any Republican opponent is going to have trouble with Hillary Clinton in this state, mm-hmm. just because of what we know about the history. And by the way, I didn't mention that 
uh, Chelsea Clinton is married to a Pennsylvanian, yeah. the son of Marjorie Margolis, a former uh, Pennsylvania congresswoman. So there's another sort of southeastern, you know, Philadelphia, though, although it's basically Montgomery County. Uh, connection. Lots of connections here with the Clintons. I don't know whether that influences people to vote or not for them, but it no. doesn't hurt, put it that yeah. way. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's, go ahead. Well, what I was going to ask is, uh, even though Hillary Clinton in the head-to-head matchups with Cruz and Trump leads, she, overall, both Democrats and Republicans, she has a high unfavorables as well. Yeah, well, look in the polls that get done where she rates on trust and honesty typically 50 percent or higher. You know, don't don't trust her and don't think she's honest. So it's not that Senator Secretary Clinton doesn't have political baggage. She does. And so we could go into a presidential election, hypothetically, where both candidates don't have a favorable view among the general electorate. You know, we're not talking about individual Democrats and how they think of of Hillary, but we're talking only about the general electorate. That would include Republicans, independents, and other voters. But we could have because of the, of the how negative this campaign is, and even Bernie Sanders and Clinton have gone at it. Now, nowhere near to the degree that the Republicans have. And, and the brutalness, this, this camp presidential campaign, as it moves through the whole process, is going to be one of the most brutal uh, campaigns in modern history. And it's going to take its toll on the attitude that voters have. Uh, towards these candidates. Well, see, you bring up something that um, polarization and uh, cynicism amongst uh, the electorate out there. Uh, First of all, I I just can't picture how more brutal it can get. But I I, I know what you're talking about uh, once we get down to it for the general election. But doesn't that discourage people from voting one? Uh, doesn't that increase cynicism amongst uh, amongst people and create even more yeah. polarization? Oh, sure. I mean, you, you know, there's you, you said a lot in a in a sentence or two uh, that requires a much lengthier explanation than I could give here. But look, we we live in the most polarized time where Democrats and Republicans are further apart on virtually every issue that pollsters ask voters about. In, than in, in, you know, in modern history. We also have the fact that voters now only listen. Now, I'll qualify that. Most people now get their information, whether it's newsprint, radio, television, on the web. They go to sources that reinforce their own views. In other words, how many, how many people actually would sit down and listen and watch Hardball? with Chris Matthews, and then turn on uh, Bill O'Reilly on Fox News. How many people do you think would do that? How many people, okay, how many people would listen to you and then listen to Rush Limbaugh? Yeah, I I, I say that, I'm only talking, you get my point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so what happens is we only hear things that reinforce our views. We don't get challenged on them. We don't say, well, what's the other side? Try to understand other other opinions. And that further accentuates the polarization. You're exactly right about that. And there's lots of, of other elements in why we are so polarized. But And it's hard to believe, 
but here, here's what's another phenomenon. Look at the massive turnout in the Republican primaries this year. They're setting record levels for turnout in the primaries and caucuses. Several states have had 100% more turnout than, than four years ago on the Republican side. The Democrats, not so much. They're running below the last time they had a big presidential contest between Clinton and Obama back in 2008. Why are the Republicans doing what they're doing? Because the anti-establishment candidates for a segment, I'm being careful about this, a segment of the electorate has captured the very thing you're talking about, the angst and the anger and the distrust, the belief that 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 government doesn't serve them. Now, Democrats and Republicans both feel that way, Republicans more than Democrats, but there are different solutions. For the Democrats, the people who feel that way are more likely to vote for Bernie Sanders, and he wants to spend a lot of money on government programs. The Republican solution is exactly the opposite. Get government out of the way and let free enterprise take over. Let the market take over. Hey, I have a quick question here from a listener, and brings up a good point, uh, because you touched on the uh, Mesvinsky. You mentioned the former Congresswoman uh, Marjorie Margolis Mesvinsky, but right. she was married to a Congressman Mesvinsky. Yeah, uh, who went to prison. Yeah. And that's what his question is. Uh, shouldn't uh, criminal actions matter on both sides? Yeah, but I mean, that's it would if it, I think we're directly related, but I don't think anybody's going to go after, you know, Mar- Chelsea Mar- Mar- or yeah, Chelsea yeah. because of that. And, and her husband, interestingly enough, I think it works on Wall Street, despite well, <laughs> <laughs> despite everything that Hillary has said about all kinds of ties here. I know, I know. <laughs> I, mean, I was just bringing that up because Marjorie Margolis. You know, by the way, she did run in, to get her old seat back the 13, in the 13th Congressional District and didn't win uh, uh, two years ago. But the, I'm just trying to make uh, make a point about connections. You follow me? Yeah. And a lot of yeah. national fundraisers for the Democrats who live in Philadelphia are – now, they raise money nationally for the Democrats. They're also Hillary, Hillary supporters. I'm just making the point that she has – Hillary Clinton, a lot of connections, a lot of relationships. You get the point that yeah. it doesn't hurt her when it comes to any interactions, the constant visits into this state. But I always appreciate uh, the, the listener who will point out uh, all sides oh, yeah. there and bring information. I want to no, change no, gears. I want to change gears for just a moment. You also ask about the Democratic U.S. Senate race. Uh, mm-hmm. You have uh, the, the poll showed that uh, Joe Sestak leads Katie McGinty by 17 points. What do you Correct. attribute that to? Well, how about how many different ways when you talk about Joe Sestak can you use terms like indefatigable? Fearless, nonstop campaigner. I think that guy has worn out about ten pair of sneakers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and you've covered him. Oh my! He used to call all the time. He used to call all the time. I I used to think. I think I've joked with you that when he ran against Arlen Specter, there were times I thought he was going to call me at home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But the other point about it is that that I I thought and I've covered his stuff for a while, he was the first candidate who would out-hustle Spectre. I mean, literally work harder. Nobody worked harder than Arlen Spectre, who boasted that he visited all 67 counties, what, every year or every two years? And so Sestak, here's what Sestak has been doing for five years. 
literally every week he's off all over the state meeting with groups, mostly Democrats, 10, 15 people here, 20 people there, eight people there. Not huge hundreds of people, but small groups of Democrats. He has been indefatigable, and I think that's nonstop for five years. That's point number one. Point number two is when you think of SESTAC, you can at least identify with a core set of issues what? The former admiral, the guy who's you know, on a lot of television shows talking about one. What? Defense, national security, foreign policy, right? Mm-hmm. So he has a niche, I think, and he's built these relationships. He's not the party favorite, believe me, among the, the Democratic Party elites. When you look at Katie McGinty's support, uh, Senator Casey uh, endorsed her this week. Uh, Ed Rendell, former Governor Rendell, is her campaign manager. Tom Wolf, Governor Wolf, has endorsed her. But she didn't win the Democratic State Committee endorsement. She didn't get two-thirds. She got about 53 or 54 percent. But I was sort of stunned at Sustak, who he wasn't viewed as the party favorite. In fact, party people were upset with him at the top level of the party for uh, running against Specter after Specter changed from Republican to Democrat in 2010. But he got something like 120, 130, 40 state committee votes. So I think when you get into the hinterland of this state, he has a lot more support among party people than we think. Hey, Terry, I'm almost out of time, but one thing I did sure. want to point out, uh, you heard the last few minutes of when I was uh, speaking with uh, Mary Wilson, our Capitol Bureau chief, about the state budget. And right. one thing you ask about with the poll is who voters blamed more. And it still comes down to 50 percent of those polled blame the legislature compared to 35 uh, percent blaming uh, Governor Wolf for what's going on in the last nine months. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, and remember the governor does have the bully pulpit. I mean, a lawmaker speaks it's covered in the district for the most part. Now, the leaders get some, you know, you've had them on your program. They get some statewide attention. The governor go- governor ran on a platform. He won by 10 percentage points. And I know people say, well, it was really a rejection of Corbett. But, but if you're Governor Wolf, you ran, you wanted to deal with a structural deficit, you wanted to increase education spending, and you wanted to do a shale tax. Now, having said that, the voters of our state don't want the big big taxes. They don't want income or sales tax hikes. They don't. They they would rather see some combination of program cuts, and and you you do the niche taxes like all the tobacco products and Marcellus Shale Severance, which is not going to happen given what's going on in the shale industry with the you know the the downgrade in the prices. The fact of the matter is, and Mary was right. We don't know what's going to happen moving forward, but it looks like it's just game on again. Each side pretty much going to stick to their positions. And since most of the lawmakers are safe, as Mary pointed out, I don't know whether there's any give that we're likely to see, at least not in the short run. Here's another takeaway. Every time we've had a budget situation, I mean with pretty substantial deficits, usually caused by the economy, no income tax hike, and that's how we've funded most of these situations in an election year. Everyone in an odd-numbered year, 03, 91, 83, 77. You got it? Mm. They were bad years. So I think it's game on. I think it just continues to be pretty much the same 
they did compromise on the so-called framework budget, which, you know, satisfied nobody but did get the Senate Republicans and the governor on the same page. Dr. G. Terry Madonna is director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs, professor of public affairs, and director of the Franklin and Marshall College Poll. Dr. Madonna, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It's been well documented that Pennsylvania has an opioid crisis. Most often, adults are addicted to opioid drugs. But what about the babies born to mothers who were using opioids. In Pennsylvania, we don't know the numbers. WITF's Ben Allen has investigated and actually has a report that will air on NPR nationally. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. So what are we talking about? We're talking about babies born dependent on opioids, opioids like heroin, like OxyContin, like Vicodin. You could also be on a therapy drug like methadone. Methadone is used to uh, get people off of uh, heroin or opioid dependence. Pennsylvania, though, like a lot of other states, and this is important to point out, Pennsylvania is not alone in this issue. It really doesn't know about how big this problem is when it comes to babies being born dependent on opioids. So a mother is taking heroin or OxyContin or Vicodin could be for a completely legitimate reason, not heroin, but could be for a completely legitimate reason. And that, um, that, gets into the fetus and that baby is born with what's known as neonatal abstinence syndrome and so the baby we don't like to use the word addicted but the baby is dependent on opioids and it can take two three four weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit to actually wean this baby off of it why is it important that we know the numbers? So it's important because this is a problem. It's, it really is a very real problem. There's limited data from Pennsylvania's Medicaid program, uh, but that's all we have at this point in terms of Pennsylvania. In 2010, about 1,100 cases, 1,100 cases in 2010 of neonatal abstinence syndrome in the Medicaid program. By 2014, nearly 2,000. So we know this is a escalating problem, and that 2014 number is the most recent year available. We know it's an escalating problem in the Medicaid program, but Medicaid only covers about 2.7 million people in Pennsylvania, so this is a state of 12.7 million people, give or take. We have no idea. The Department of Health does not, as of right now, as we sit here right now, the Department of Health does not track this information. There is no information about neonatal abstinence syndrome. Now you could go through hospital records and do some really extensive digging. But in terms of if you went to somebody and said, how many neonatal abstinence cases uh, happened in Pennsylvania in 2014? No one could give you that one answer right now. And this is important because, like I said, these babies need a lot of care, and it could be taxpayer money. It could be um, money that could be addressed beforehand, before that mother goes on Vicodin or OxyContin. So it really has a wide-ranging impact on, on not only the economics of Pennsylvania, but, of course, we can certainly talk about the health impact as well. How are those babies treated once they're born? Yeah, so when they are born... They're given, um, usually, there's no real right treatment, but it's usually morphine or, or something like that in smaller doses and slowly weaned off. It is a long process. It is a very labor-intensive process. Uh, nurses, doctors that I talked to said it's basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week, attention on this baby. Um, and then 
you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks later, that baby can go home um, either with the mother or to a foster care uh, facility or something like that. But it it's very intensive. It's you know it it can it can break your heart when you you go to a neonatal intensive care unit and see as I did at Pinnacle Health uh, in Harrisburg. You see one of these children in a private room. It's very quiet. They try and keep it very quiet because it's important so that um, the baby's uh, nervous system isn't really reacting strongly to this. It you know it, it's. It's almost humbling. And they were um, in pain. Yeah, yeah. These, these babies that can, one to five days after they're born, you can really get a sense of when um, they have neonatal intense, or neonatal abstinence syndrome because um, they're crying a lot. That's really one of the main signs, a lot of crying that goes on. And then, of course, they save the umbilical cord and will test that umbilical cord, look for traces of these drugs like OxyContin or Vicodin or heroin, and then um, and then go from there. Now, another thing that I want to address, Scott, I know we're running out of time. One thing I want to address, Tennessee does this very yeah, well. You talked to Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. They, they track this very well. And this is the important part that uh, a health official from Tennessee said to me. We all have that stereotype. Who's that person that you think is taking Vicodin or OxyContin? What kind of mother... A lot of people would say, what kind of mother is going to take this when she knows it's going to do harm to her baby? Tennessee tracked this information. In the majority of cases in Tennessee, mothers were taking opioids that were prescribed by doctors. Let me say that again. Doctors prescribed opioids to mothers who were taking this, this, these kinds of drugs. But why would doctors do that if the, if the mother was pregnant? Now, this is, uh, we could have a whole smart talk on right, that, we Scott. could, yeah. But um, basically, you know, you have pain, you want it to be addressed, and sometimes there aren't any better options out there. Sometimes you may be addicted to, to these drugs yourself as a mother. So it really goes, you know, this is more than just an issue of pointing the finger at the mother and saying, you took this Vicodin, you took this OxyContin. It's not that simple. And when you have the data, when you know why and where these, these mothers are getting these, these drugs, then you can actually start to address it. So Tennessee said, instead of going to law enforcement and starting to really, you know, bring on punitive actions against these mothers, we actually went to the doctors and said, hey, why are you doing this? How can we address this in a better way so that we're not having neonatal and uh, abstinence syndrome cases increasing? So we have a whole NPR series, four stories. I have the, the last of the four. It'll be Monday on All Things Considered on NPR nationally. And it just talks about the statistics and why these are so important, because it's more than just numbers. These are driving decisions that policymakers make. So we're really excited about it. You'll be able to hear all the stories on NPR right here on WITF. Find them on NPR.org. And then one quick plug, Scott. NPR One, we are doing a very special show where we put all the stories together you'll be able to find that on the npr one app if you download that on your cell phones uh you'll be able to hear that all on npr one so well, check it out it'll be a, a, a lot of interesting and, and important stuff here. well ben some great work and this has the sound of a series on npr that could make a difference ben uh, allen really thank you so. very much yeah. for for being with us today Thanks, coming up on uh, monday's program we're talking about eye health